Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome back. Uh, today I'd like to talk with you again about China and the uh, strategic challenge it poses for the United States. For those of you watching on YouTube, you might notice we've got a little different set here, different background. Uh, we're taping this from uh, my house out in Virginia on the side of a mountain. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Chinese uh, technology and telecommunications expertise, among other things. And we don't quite have their level of technology here on the side of the mountain, so bear with us if we get cut out on the, uh, on the feed. Uh, China. Uh, did you know that China's got nine of the top 20 technology companies in the world? Uh, that 30 to 40 percent of graduates from Chinese colleges major in science and technology? Did you know in the United States that's only about 5 percent? Uh, did you know that Chinese, that China plans to devote almost 2.5 percent of its GDP to scientific research and development? and that their venture capital industry, which has been one of the glories of the United States and its innovation machine, now is as large as the, as, as the industry in the United States at roughly $50 billion and growing. Uh, and that China also has a, a search, industry, in, search company that's, whose capabilities are equivalent to Google and a, and a shopping company, an online shopping company that's equivalent to Amazon. Uh, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we should know about China. And if you're going to uh, I think appreciate what, what we want to be dealing with. There's, these are some of the things you need to know. They also just built the largest uh, telescope to study the universe. Uh, and robots, we're concerned about uh, job loss in the United States. Well, their use of robots is growing dramatically uh, in China in, in their factories. And they actually have fully unmanned factories. Uh, with me to learn about this and China's grand strategy are two very, very smart men, senior fellows at Heritage Institute, where I, at Heritage Foundation, uh, where I'm a trustee. Uh, Claude Kitchen, um, senior research fellow, Heritage. Uh, he spent 16 years in the U.S. intelligence biz uh, business, intelligence community, and was a senior advisor to Ben Sass, U.S. Senator. Uh, also with me is Dean Shang, who is a uh, senior research fellow, uh, and he has uh, worked in the Center for Naval Analysis and also is an author of a very compelling book, which I hope you'll, uh, after watching the show or listening to the show, you'll pick up called Cyber Dragon. Dean, Klon, welcome. Uh, Dean, you recently testified in, to Congress about the uh, the, uh, the science and uh, engineering technology strategy that China has and laid out for uh, Congress pretty much uh, where they are and where they're going. Could you start us out with a bit of summary on, on that? So the Chinese see science and technology as feeding into all of the elements of what they term comprehensive national power. Comprehensive national power is basically how do you, you rack and stack all the world's companies. How do you compare a Brazil, a France, uh, an America, and a China? And so you have the military piece, of course. You have economics. You have political unity. You have diplomatic respect. Uh, you have even cultural security. And from the Chinese perspective, science and technology affects all of this. 
The military part is pretty self-evident, uh, better weapons, more accurate capabilities, longer range. Uh, but economics is particularly important. You don't want to simply make washing machines and t-shirts for other people. You want to design the operating system that is on everybody else's computers. You want to design space systems that serve your interests, not rent other people's systems. Um, it even has an impact on your culture and your political uh, reputation. If you're a science and technology powerhouse, other countries respect you more. Think about how often, you know, everyone around the world has raised the idea of, well, you know, we've gone to the moon. When we say we've gone to the moon, we mean the United States has gone to the moon. China wants to put a man on the moon eventually, partly to make the point, you know what? China can also do the same sorts of things. So to that end, uh, as you noted, they are willing to spend 2.5% of the world's second largest GDP yeah. on research and development. They are developing a broad array of space capabilities. They are experimenting in genetics, even on humans at this point, something that we have some real ethical issues and worries about. Uh, information technology, um, you know, they make uh, several of the world's fastest supercomputers are Chinese. People had always sort of assumed what would be a Cray or an American, but only this year did we finally retake the world's fastest supercomputer title. But well, before didn't, the, yeah, didn't, but didn't, the last several years, it's actually been Chinese. Didn't we have one in progress and Congress decided to kill the project because it was too expensive? Uh, that's a different project. Uh, I think you're, uh, that was the Super, well, super, super Collider. Super Collider, yeah. The, uh, yeah super I got, I got um, Again, the Chinese are willing to pour money into basic research because they see that yeah. as potentially also well, well, the, both the reputation. And they not only want to go to the moon, they want to go to the dark side of the moon. Uh, I've been listening to Pink Floyd, I guess, so they're going to one-up us. Klon, uh, you wrote recently about, uh, about Google and about Google's unwillingness to be involved in uh, the U.S. Uh, um, strategic initiative, uh, technology defense, and that sort of thing. And one of the things that I'm sure Dean hadn't talked about yet, but there's a there's a there's a cohesiveness in China that the, uh, the distinction between government and industry and the rest of society really isn't there. They're all working more or less for a common purpose, or at least at a high level they are. Klon? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Uh, one of the things that the Chinese have been very deliberate in cultivating and uh, seem to be increasingly capable in executing is a um, an integration of the state, the uh, industry, uh, and academia. So um, Xinhua University, which is their version of MIT, uh, has recently rolled out a brand new program that explicitly has as its aim uh, the development and delivering of cutting edge uh, artificial intelligence technologies to the government, to the military, to the intelligence uh, community there in China. Um, the Chinese government, um, as Dean lays out so well, understands that technology is is the bedrock capability that then facilitates the other uh, elements of national power. And it is seeking to leverage all of its um, uh, aspects of society uh, to, to achieve their, their aims. Now, historically, where the United States has been able to um, thrive is a lot of that integration and cooperation has happened quite organically. It didn't require state compulsion uh, I think there was a, a broad shared understanding that um, 
American uh, economic growth and uh, superiority uh, led to national thriving in general. It led to a, a more healthy business environment, uh, better governance, uh, better industry, and, and that was a, a self-perpetuating reality. Uh, one of the things that is beginning to challenge that though is um, particularly in the tech industry, um, many of the top companies self-identify as global companies. Um, they, they tend to be American companies who operate internationally, but they, they take on a persona and, and self-identify as kind of global actors. And for, I think, some legitimate or at least understandable reasons, they seek to portray themselves as, as kind of neutral actors in the international economy. Um, one of the challenges, however, is that um, because of the way China, for example, um, is pursuing its economic policy and, and deliberately using its market as a means of compulsion. Yeah. Um, many of these companies are being essentially forced to choose a flag. And so um, in the case of, of, of Google, uh, a key example of that is how they are considering rolling out or delivering a government approved censored search capability in China for the express purposes of regaining access to that market. So that is something that the government is requiring of them and they seem to be willing to comply. Yeah, as you've written, I mean, Google is basically, their employees, 4,000 of their employees say they don't wanna work with the uh, Defense Department's Project Maven because they right. don't wanna be part of the, uh, the United States war machine, yet they turn around and deliver technology into China. Dean? Well, I mean, this is, an interesting turnaround. American corporations have often been able to benefit. Uh, we operate globally, and so we wind up hiring globally and benefiting from the huge pool of talent that comes from both not only within the United States, but outside. You know, the chairman of PepsiCo uh, recently um, changed hands, but the outgoing chairman was an Indian woman, right? Uh, because India is a huge market for Pepsi products, and she was smart and therefore rose to the top of that ladder. That's yeah. a great benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, what the Chinese have done, however, is to flip this on its head, which is to say, if you want to operate in China, you're going to have to play by our rules rather than and we have to play by your rules. And uh, they, particularly in information technology, this is facilitated through the so-called Great Firewall of China. So it's not just that Google can't operate in China because the Chinese government doesn't want them there, but it's almost impossible to access Google because the Great Firewall of China prevents Chinese people, Chinese internet users, from accessing Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. In an interesting way, it is electronic mercantilism. Well, interesting, the shows I've done on China, you can kind of see the firewall working. We've had a tremendous interest among Chinese living all over the world. I think over 170 countries have been represented by people watching or listening to this on YouTube, but uh, nobody from China. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, or at least they haven't shown up in the YouTube statistics. I don't know, Klein, you worked in the, uh, the defense intelligence community for, for years. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, so um, I'll pick up on your point on, on the Project Maven issue. Um, what Project Maven was, was is, it's a Department of Defense Research Initiative looking to use uh, artificial intelligence, particularly what's called image recognition, artificial intelligence that is able to see and understand pictures and apply it to a broad range of defense initiatives. Now, certainly that would include 
um, offensive capabilities, but it is also the types of things that we would deploy in support of humanitarian aid efforts or um, you know, for example, we could put it on a drone and it could fly ahead of a convoy and um, proactively identify potential um, improvised explosive devices or, um, you know, scan wide areas and very efficiently look for a downed pilot or all kinds of, you know, humanitarian and, and, and otherwise nonviolent applications. Um, the Google employees, about 4,000 of them, uh, very few of whom actually worked on that project, by the way, um, signed a, an internal petition. Uh, saying we don't want to be a part of, of war making, uh, which, you know, as a, as a, as a private company, uh, you know, they, they can make that choice. Uh, where it became particularly problematic, though, was they issued this set of uh, artificial intelligence principles that they would seemingly violate with virtually any interaction and cooperation that they would have with the Chinese government. So there's no doubt that their research and that their capabilities would be employed by the, the Chinese government to um, suppress uh, human rights to suppress political dissidents, both inside and outside uh, of China, and a whole host of other violations that would seemingly violate, you know, the, the principles that Google's articulating. And so, what Google has is a um, a real internal coherence problem that they're not doing a good job of articulating, and that is over the course of time, I think, cultivating broader and broader uh, skepticism about you know, how they think about these things. And the, you know, the final point I'll make, and this is the bigger point to, to your question, the reality is, is that there is no uh, scenario going forward where the United States is able to secure its national interest without integrating the private sector at the root level of policy and strategy. And that is because so much of these capabilities, so much of this talent, and so much of the data itself resides in the private sector. And so we have to find a better way of bridging these communities so that um, the antagonism uh, begins to recede and the cooperation uh, expands. Well, Dean, you've written about the, uh, I mean, it seems to me we've got a tremendous cultural difference here where China sees itself as one whole thing with a national strategy and people feel them caught up with in that and the long history of authoritarian rule and and people are just fine with that, and they're doing well. And since since Mao was died, uh, the the wealth creation in China has been extraordinary. And most people in China thank the Chinese government for doing that. So if you if you want to uh, enlist us in the national strategy, let's have it because we're thriving here. Whereas in the United States, we've got we're individualistic, and it seems like national security is also colliding a bit with the culture wars. Where the culture wars, we've got people that don't think America is such a great country, and whether it's Google or employees of Google, they don't want to do anything to help advance America's interests in the world. And in China, um, my perception is they don't have that issue. Uh, Dean, what's uh, what, what are your thoughts? So it is important to recognize that on the one hand, um, you it's very hard to create consensus among 1.3 billion people. <laughs> Um, and one of the really interesting things that the Chinese have tried very hard to hide is the amount of internal unrest. Yeah. Uh, China's defense budget has been rising by double digits uh, almost every year, except for the last couple, uh, since the mid-1990s. What is fascinating is that's external security, the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army. China's internal security spending, People's Armed Police, uh, Ministry of Public Security, as far as we can tell from the very spotty Chinese numbers, has been rising even faster. 
What that says is that there is a lot of internal unrest. And part of the reason for the Great Firewall of China, part of the reason why every phone call, every text message, every social media outlet is constantly being monitored, both through artificial intelligence and human censors, is because they see this as a fundamental threat to them. Um, and within that context, then, the Chinese see uh, the ability of the free flow of information into China yeah. as something that has to be stanched almost at any cost. Well, the, go ahead. Well, it used to be said in China that all that held it together was an imperial culture and, a, and, and taxation. And you're saying, though, that technology has really radically changed that, uh, that, uh, that calculus. Well, yeah, and if I can just add to that, I mean, yeah, I think we're about to even see what it looks like to have that essentially super enabled. So when what we're what we're going to be seeing is a type of technologically enabled authoritarianism, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And so when you put that in the context of, say, the uh, the emerging social credit score that the Chinese government is doing, where uh, individual citizens will be assessed a running score, yeah. kind of a citizenship score, if you like. Uh, based on voting patterns and uh, purchasing habits and whether or not they, you know, adhere to social norms and a whole host of other things, all of which are increasingly collectible now as uh, the Chinese government rolls out an advanced kind of uh, surveillance state. Well, that's going to then enable these kind of sophisticated um, or, or lack thereof or, or not sophisticated um, assessments about the, the, the citizenship viability of an individual um, Chinese person, and those decisions will affect what jobs they can have, yeah. where they can live, if yeah. they can move, what type of... So what we're going to see then, the bottom line is, is a level of authoritarianism that is highly desirable to the Chinese government that is previously unseen, and the government's going to be in a race. I think they're going to be racing to realize as many, from their perspective, of the benefits of this type of technological enabled authoritarianism as possible, faster than the inevitably socially corrosive impact of that type of authoritarianism. And I think it's frankly unknown as to yeah. um, who's going to win that race. Would Can you I follow up on that? Real jump point? in, jump in, yeah. I mean, so it's important to recognize, for example, that the Chinese media environment is state owned newspapers, television, etc. Yeah. So when a story is played up in Chinese media, it's almost always because the government supports it. One of the stories that they've been playing up is women are now, according to the Chinese media, picking their dating partners based on their social media, based on their Chinese social credit score. So basically, in a, and keep in mind, because of Chinese demographics, there are way more men than there are women. So the implicit story that the Chinese media is pushing is, if you want dates, behave, because that's how women are picking their dates. Whether it's true or not is a separate issue. This is the story backed by their credit score, social credit score system that they are pushing. Wow. Well, the, but... There may be some rationality to that, though, because if your job prospects depend on your social credit score, then then it's pretty rational for a, a woman to pick a man who's got good pro good good uh, job prospects or income or power or whatever. So it's not it's not crazy. You you guys know Gordon Chang. Gordon Chang 
writes, and I'm interested in your take on this, that by 2020, uh, Chinese security officials uh, plan to have 600 million surveillance cameras installed. Uh, they're bragging that facial recognition software can scan the entire population in one second. That's your billion three people. And uh, I guess last April, they picked out a suspect in a crowd of 60,000 people at a concert in Nanking. Is that, is, that, uh, is that consistent with your understanding of where their technology is and facial recognition? Yeah, so there have been a series of um, competitions for AI um, image recognition software, and Chinese companies have won that competition for the last four years in a row. Um, they are in so so the, the lifeblood of, of technology and particularly of AI technology is is data, and so the, the the deeper volume of data you have, the more sophisticated and refined your AI algorithms can become, uh, because the Chinese government essentially has carte blanche freedom of movement to surveil as it sees fit, uh, and coupled with its geographic size and its population density, uh, they're able to collect and they do collect all the data they want. And so what we have seen is the proving out of that reality, that data feeds AI algorithms. Now there are trade-offs there, right? So um, because of the, um, the, the kind of oneness of ethnicity, there are open questions about whether or not those AI algorithms can then be kind of applied to non-Chinese or non-Asian um, demographics and if they'll collect as um, efficiently and, and um, effectively but even that, I think, honestly, it's we're not far from those types of general learning algorithms being applied more specifically, and um, they're demonstrating real capacity. And the, the, the only thing I'll, I'll say in addition to that is, as we think about the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, this initiative to kind of build out economic and This is uh, the one, one belt, one road, the way to roll out this outside of China. That's right, yeah, yeah. This is, so the, the idea of a deliberate, broad, um, building out of economic and political ties across uh, the world to facilitate a, a, a grand strategic aim of China. Dean can speak at length about that, I'm sure. But I think one of the things um, that will be the key uh, exports along the Belt and Road is going to be this technologically enabled authoritarianism. So to the degree that we see China cultivating client states, say in Africa or, 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 el or in Asia or elsewhere. Or, or now Turkey. Yeah, Turkey, Hungary. Uh, yeah. we're, we're going to see um, this type of, of technologically enabled government uh, be something that, that those regimes are asking for help with. Dean? You don't have to look so far afield. One of the largest sources of closed circuit and security cameras in the United States is from China. The Chinese are manufacturing a lot of the cameras that are now being put up at your bank, at 7-Eleven, at, at the grocery store, or at the gas station. The problem is, it's not clear where that data is going. Sure, it's going into the back room of the 7-Eleven or the bank or the uh, uh, grocery store, but it appears that the Chinese have also wired in a lot of that data going back to China, which then gets fed into their database. So, you know, part of the question in the past has been, well, where would the Chinese get all of this information? The same thing applies if you think about it to the depth of data that they've collected, whether it was the office personnel management hack, yeah. whether it is the healthcare agency and insurance company hacks, your health insurance. An interesting point here. If you 
or your viewers have ever submitted your data to Ancestry.com or any of those um, uh, places that will help you find out who you are and where you came from, that data has been packaged and resold. And we believe that one of the biggest clients and customers for that has been the Chinese. So therefore, they've got your image, they've got your health data, they've got your ancestry data, they've got you know probably your, your personnel, banking, and all the other information. This is what feeds into building an artificial intelligence database. And that's precisely why the Department of Defense uh, last year issued a, uh, a directive forbidding DOD personnel from owning and operating DJI uh, drones. DJI is one of the most popular uh, commercial drones available. It's Chinese owned. Yeah. And it was precisely because the data that was being filmed and collected on those drones was being passed back through Chinese servers. So this is real. And this is happening on a broad, broad spectrum. So uh, I guess my only personal consolation is that when I ran a public company, I used to have the Washington Post publish my compensation every May, so I'm, I'm used to being out there at least in that sense. <laughs> but this is, this is, this is, this is beyond, uh, beyond uh, science fiction, though. I mean, it's, uh, they have Belt and Road, they have a strategy to work with countries. Some people call it a debt trap, where they say, we'll come in and help you build your port or build your infrastructure, things like that, and you'll borrow the money from us. And then once you discover you can't pay them back, then they just basically take a 99-year lease. And so this is not just in China. This thing is being rolled out. Is there, are there other examples I'm missing here that I know Germany has gotten concerned about inve Chinese investment in Germany? What uh, thoughts? So one of the things that the United States has is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., yeah. uh, CFIUS. Uh, what that is, is it serves a gatekeeper function. If somebody from abroad wants to come in and buy an American company, uh, then the CFIUS review process looks it over and says, is this strategically important? So if somebody wanted to buy Google or Intel, at the entire company were a huge share of it, CFIUS would probably say no. On the other hand, uh, Smithfield Hams, was, you know, the meat packing company, was in fact sold to the Chinese. Well, Smith, Smithfield Hams, uh, I think we may have lost our internet connection. Yeah. Is that the Chinese have been steadily purchasing okay. high tech companies in Germany and there was no gatekeeper for it. So they prevented the sale, the most recent sale of it. I think it was a company named KUKA. But more importantly, the Germans and other Europeans are now basically saying, we need something like Cepheus. We need something that will review any high-tech sales, not of products, but of entire companies, uh, if China or somebody like them wants to buy it up. Well, I think the CFIUS law, though, or the process at Treasury, it's inside the Treasury Department. And if you talk to, and I talked with those people in 2016 as a part of the Trump transition, and they were really focused mainly on technology, or not technology, but on economic interests. and and monopoly and, and the economic impact of foreign investment. They weren't so much focused on strategic, military, um, uh, and other dimensions of that investment. And didn't there a new law that's uh, being, being ruled out called FIRMA, F-I-R-R-M-A, which is supposed to be a more comprehensive uh, uh, attack on this uh, problem? Uh, 
Yeah, it, they are. Uh, it's been a, a over a year long process of trying to um, update and refine uh, the CFIUS mandate in light of the digital age. Um, I think to some degree they've made, I think, some, some necessary and, and, and obvious improvements. But one of the challenges when it comes to technology is, you know, unlike in the industrial age where we were concerned about, you know, particular types of aluminum tubes, for example, which only had essentially one application, uh, with technology, say with an AI algorithm, it's not the underlying algorithm that's the problem, it's the potential application of that algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can regulate, you know, the content of an algorithm if you want, but there's just nothing inherently uh, sneaky or bad about that. It's the potential application of it. So that's, that's one of the key challenges. The other key challenge is, is um, increasingly significant portions of technological advancements are done in what's called open open source ways, where um, it's not being done in um, at least significant parts of them aren't being completed in secret government uh, research facilities. They're being done by private entities, by universities, often in the public, where where portions of the solution are crowdsourced and uploaded to Reddit, and you can just download it and tweak it and play with it. And, and that's kind of the iterative process by which a lot of technology uh, is developed. And so when we talk about, you know, the, the, the challenge of technological proliferation, you know, when we talked about nuclear weapons, the problem was, um, you know, only a few people have it. How do we keep that uh, to a small number, the smallest group possible? Well, one of the challenges with, um, with technology, increasingly software particularly, is if anybody has it, everybody has it. So yeah. what does that mean? How do we as a nation think through those types of dynamics from a security and defense perspective? And how do we think about it? Are we organizing uh, the agencies to work together on this? How, how, how aware is Congress of this issue? I mean, it's, these are certainly not issues that are out there part of the political process. This is not the kind of thing that's deciding elections. I mean, how do we raise consciousness to, uh, to deal with this? Uh, so I, I do think that, that Congress is increasingly feeling the pain point. I think they want to address it. Yeah. Uh, I do think that they are, are uh, not addressing that as quickly as, uh, as, they, as they might. Um, I think one of the key challenges that they face, frankly, is um, a lack of sophisticated understanding. Yeah. Um, and um, trying, to, trying to appreciate that. But, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to get too pessimistic. You know, there there are lawmakers out there. So uh, when we talked about the Chinese cell phone maker uh, ZTE and Huawei, um, precisely because some of the concerns that we've already articulated in terms of where data is going and 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 Chinese access to U.S. cellular infrastructure and concerns about that, people are are aware, I think, and are now just trying to figure out what the best approaches are. Um, I think what people probably don't have as sophisticated understanding of is what is what um, what Dean has laid out in terms of the comprehensive nature of the challenge. That it's not just cell phone makers and it's not just the technologies themselves. It's establishing the standards for the technologies, you know, standards that would facilitate what China wants and that would benefit it. So this is a bigger problem than um, I think we've dealt with previously, at least in the, in the most recent history. And it's going to require a level of um, coordination and and political will that um, we haven't demonstrated yet. How much of this is informing what Trump is doing in his negotiations with China on trade? 
I mean, Bob Lighthizer is a friend, and it seems like they've got a more. This is not just about opening up our markets or you know keeping steel and aluminum companies. I think there's a whole technology component in in what they're doing with China. How do you see whether we're getting proper engagement from Trump and Bob Lighthizer? Well, the administration has been very clear that um, as it has been applying tariffs and doing other things that. These are issues that cover again. Some of it is old manufacturing uh, yeah. sectors, aluminum and steel. But one of the big complaints that this administration has laid out against the Chinese has been the issue of intellectual property theft. Mm -hmm. And intellectual property theft is not simply buying an airliner or a piece of steel or whatever and trying to reverse engineer it. More and more, it is a matter of breaking into the networks and just wholesale scooping up the blueprints, the marketing plans, the formulations and formulas. And this is one of the things that is absolutely vital that we as a nation need to recognize is yes, government absolutely does have a role to play, but so do individuals, both people and companies. You, your <coughs> listeners need to recognize that if they are working for a mid-sized chemical firm or a mid-sized paint firm or mid-sized agricultural firm, just because they're not making absolute high-tech programs or weapons does not mean that they are safe from the Chinese. Hmm. The Chinese are going through their databases, are going through their marketing plans, are going through their intellectual property, that if their marketing and uh, you know, customer relations and R&D directors are going to China, they should not be taking their personal laptops that have their emails all of their company documents, et cetera. And it's really disturbing how often folks still seem to do that because they think, oh, but if I don't make F-35s or components, if I don't make Navy warships, then the Chinese probably aren't gonna be interested in my stuff. If you're going to China to sell them something, they're interested in your stuff. You bet. Um, I've got about three or four more pages of questions. I think we're gonna run out of time before I can get to that. We're gonna to have to have a part two, probably a part three. But before we go on to that, I, I just want to get at who's behind all this? What's behind all this? What's the Chinese leadership like? We just had President Xi declare himself president for life. But as I understand it, that's more of a ceremonial post. There are a couple other posts that are as important or more important, like head of the Chinese Communist Party, that he's not yet uh, been appointed for life. Uh, and there are pressures on, on, on the on the party to uh, to maintain power, and you know I've always wondered about this relationship between all the billionaires in China and so-called private sector and the government and in the in the leadership there is that is that are there is there a common vision about what China ought to be and more everybody more or less buying into that or are there pressures or the centrifugal forces that might pull it apart? Well, Xi Jinping is easily the most powerful Chinese leader. In 40 years. He did succeed in uh, changing the Chinese constitution so he is president for life. Um, he, the party doesn't have a constitution like that, but I don't think anyone is expecting him to step down as general secretary yeah. of the Chinese Communist Party, and that really yeah. is the most important position. As for Chinese millionaires and billionaires, um, if you take a look at companies like Andong, like uh, Wanda Dalia, 
like HNN, the Chinese are systematically uh, basically um, investigating and in many cases arresting or otherwise influencing top Chinese millionaires and even billionaires to either pull them into line or else to make very clear, if you don't tell the line, there are very, very ugly consequences. So for a long time, there was the hope that as millionaires and billionaires developed, as China economically grew, as mm -hmm. the middle class grew, that you would have a uh, middle class uh, track, if you will, that China would have to politically liberalize the same way it had been on. That was the theory about opening up trade from the very get-go. Exactly. If you economically liberalize, politics will follow. And what Beijing has demonstrated, what the Chinese Communist Party has demonstrated is, no, you don't. <laughs> and the Chinese Communist Party has made very clear, far from liberalizing, it is more authoritarian. It is more restrictive. Xi Jinping is more powerful and has to listen to fewer people today than his predecessors. Uh, be they uh, Hu Jintao or uh, Jiang Zemin. You know, if I could just add one more thing to that, just uh, the only thing I would say about uh, Xi Jinping particularly is that if you look at the various strategies and plans that he is behind, he makes the point, and this is politically risky to some degree, of establishing specific metrics and specific milestones. And I mean, Bill, you'll know from your time you know, a strategy is only as good as its details and it's kind of like, what are we actually going to do? We can do big hand waves yeah. uh, and that's only goes so far. But what, but, you know, President Xi Jinping has a plan and uh, he is, is moving deliberately to uh, provide uh, the type of change that he has promised. And um, I think there's every reason for us to respect him mm. and what he says. I think we should take him at his word. Okay, well, we need to wrap up here. On that note, uh, thank you for uh, your insights. Uh, Klon Kitchen and Dean Chang, both uh, senior research fellows at Heritage Institute, and you can be found, Dean, your email address is? Uh, Dean.Chang, C-H-E-N-G, at heritage.org. Klon? And Klon, K-L-O-N, dot kitchen, just like the room, at heritage.org. Okay. You can also follow me on Twitter at Klon Kitchen. Twitter, Dean? Uh, I'm afraid I don't actually have a Twitter account. Well, you know too much about the dangers of having a Twitter account. <laughs> so anyway, hope to have you guys back soon. And uh, thanks for the insights. And uh, I think we need to think about China as being a real problem for us unless we do something to address it. So thank you. And uh, thank you for joining me. And uh, join us again for the next, uh, next conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.